You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Luke, chapter 1, verses 67 through 79 uh, this evening. We are continuing our Advent series, celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And tonight we come to another Christmas hymn, right? The second ever Christmas hymn written. And it's called the Benedictus. Um, It's a prophecy of praise by the priest and father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. And it's called the Benedictus because in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible that the church used for centuries, uh, the opening word of this passage is Benedictus, meaning blessed be. Right, the opening line of Zechariah's song is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Right, it's beautiful. Uh, but this prophetic hymn of praise is, is, is truly a delight to think through. Um, I know I say stuff like that every week, uh, no matter what passage of Scripture that we're in. It's because it's true. Uh, but this one, I, I was especially blessed in studying this passage this past week. Um, but Zechariah speaks this hymn after his son, John the Baptist, is born. Uh, but what's funny is this song isn't about John. Like, it's not really about John, though it was sung on John's birthday. Uh, Actually, only two verses of the entire hymn, verses 76 and 77, are in reference to John. The rest of the entire hymn is about Jesus, right? It's about what God is going to accomplish in his son, taking on flesh and coming into the world. Uh, So on the day of the birth of his own son, Zechariah speaks primarily of the Son of God. And that seems strange to us, maybe, uh, but it's actually really fitting since John the Baptist is the forerunner to Christ who himself said, he must increase and I must decrease, right? So don't worry, John was absolutely fine with Jesus getting all the attention on his birthday because John's whole life was about pointing people to Jesus. Now our text this evening um, is actually one big long sentence in the original language. The entire Benedictus is one sentence long uh, and it is bursting to the seams with praise for God. It's a prophecy of praise for what God's going to do through Jesus. It's praise to God for salvation. And it's a hymn of pure praise. And what I mean by that is there are no words of judgment here in this hymn. You remember last week, Mary, whenever she sang the Magnificat, she spoke of God pulling the mighty down from their thrones and sending the rich away empty. Um, But This text is just praise to God for what he's doing through salvation history. It's a hymn of pure praise. It's praise to God for his goodness, for his mercy, and for his covenant-keeping faithfulness. It's a hymn of prophetic thanksgiving, one commentator said. It's really a hymn of thanksgiving. And so I've decided to structure this sermon around that concept. Again, Zechariah is giving thanks to God for what God is going to do through the Messiah. So we're going to be considering what all we should be thanking God for when we think about the birth and coming of our Lord, right? We want to see what Zechariah saw. And we'll be going a little bit out of order uh, in the text at times. Normally I just go bop through verse by verse until we get to the end. Uh, That's not really what I'm doing this evening. Mainly we're going to be looking for themes and concepts instead of a verse by verse breakdown running all the way through. Um, But we'll be considering what we should be giving thanks to God about when we think about Christmas. And I have no doubt that we will see very clearly by the end of this that Christmas is about thanking the Lord for what he has done for us in his son. 
And by the end of our time together in this text, we will all say along with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I have no doubt in my mind. Right, so with that said, as a sign of respect for our God, if you are able, and you would, please stand with me now for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise or day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you once again to sit under the ministry of your word, and we come to you in humility, asking that you would bless us by giving us insight and spiritual understanding of the truth set before us. By your spirit, teach us. Raise us up to you as we meditate on your word. Cause us to behold wondrous things in your law. Show us our Lord and all of his blessings that you have graciously showered upon us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so a, a bit of context. I know I addressed some of it in the introduction. Um, but we know that this hymn didn't just fall out of the sky, right? It came in the context of a situation, and that context is found in verses 57 through 66 of this chapter. Uh, and there we read, I'll summarize it, we read about the birth of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, who was born according to the word of the angel Gabriel, who foretold John's birth to Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem nine months beforehand, right? Now remember this, the, the significance of John the Baptist, right? What was his significance? He was to be the forerunner to the Messiah. It was foretold by the angel Gabriel that John would preach. He would have a message. He would preach repentance. And he would preach that the Messiah was to come immediately after him. And he was to preach that judgment was coming upon ethnic Israel if they did not submit to and receive the Messiah. Right? So again, John was to be a mighty prophet of God and a forerunner to the Messiah. But bottom line for us this evening, what you need to know is that John's birth signals that the Messiah is indeed coming. That's what's important here. John's birth signals that the Messiah is coming. The forerunner is here, and that means that the main event, the Lord Jesus, is coming. Right? Like the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being the forerunner on our behalf who goes into the Holy of Holies. What does that mean? It means we will follow him. If he's our forerunner, we will certainly go there as well. So John the Baptist, if he's the forerunner to Jesus, then Jesus is certainly coming. The Messiah is certainly coming. And Zechariah, who was previously struck mute because of his unbelief that his wife would give birth in her old age, 
is now given back his speech on the day that John is born. He's given back his speech just like Gabriel told him would happen. And Zechariah, seeing the birth of his son, the forerunner of the Christ and prophet of God, Zechariah immediately begins to praise God. And he declares a prophecy concerning Christ and to a lesser extent, his own son, John the Baptist. So there's some context for you. That's why Zechariah bursts in praise. In seeing the birth of his son, he knows Messiah is coming very, very soon. Now there are two more things that you need to know before we dive into Zechariah's song, a a bit technical perhaps. Uh, The first is Zechariah, like Mary in her song, speaks a lot in the prophetic past tense, right? Um, He speaks as if God has already accomplished everything that he says in the hymn, but the Messiah, Jesus, hasn't even been born yet. What's going on is that Zechariah is saying, God is so faithful to keep his word, he's so faithful that these things are as good as done. Right? These things are so certain that it's as if they have already taken place. Again, Mary did it in the Magnificat. Paul does it in some of his letters. Zechariah is doing it here. What does that tell us? He's full of faith as well as praise. He believes that God will do what he has promised, and it's as good as done. So he speaks in the past tense. A second thing for us to consider. We're going to see some implications in this text that aren't really explicitly in the text. Right? So keeping that in mind, we need to know that Zechariah probably spoke of more than he realized. Right? There is more truth in this hymn than Zechariah or any other Jew at that time could have understood. And don't misunderstand me. Zechariah understood what he was saying. I'm not saying that he was just like some automatic writing like pagans believe. Right? Nothing like that. Um, he understood what he was saying as he said it, but he was saying more than he realized he was saying, right? Remember, prophets, verse 67 says he prophesied, prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, right? They spoke from God. They didn't, they didn't give their own interpretation, but they spoke as God gave them utterance. So a prophet could speak from God and not fully understand all of the implications or fullest extent of the meaning of what they were saying. But the fullness of the prophecy could and would be understood once it came to fulfillment. And what are we on? We're on the other side of the fulfillment of the things that Zechariah prophesied. So we can look back at his prophecy and understand it with greater clarity than even he had when he gave it. Just like we can read Isaiah 53. I hope I'm not getting my chapter wrong. That would be the worst pastor move of all time. We can read Isaiah's suffering servant passage. And we understand that better. That's the Son of God who would suffer. Did Isaiah have any idea that it would be literally the Son of God who suffered? I don't believe so. This is why Peter tells us that we are in a blessed position as new covenant believers because we understand and have greater insight into the things that the prophets desired to understand. Right? So again, we're going to see more and we're going to understand more about this prophecy than Zechariah probably even realized. But with those things said, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, what should we be thankful for? Right, that's how I'm structuring this. What should we be thankful for when we consider the incarnation of our Lord Jesus? Well, first, we should praise God because in Christ, God has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah tells us that God has come to us. He has visited us with the coming of Messiah. God has seen the plight of his people. He's seen their need for rescue, and now he has decided to act to help them. 
In other words, God has come down to rescue us. He has visited us with salvation. And what's interesting is that this is, like Mary's hymn, this is actually Exodus language. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, we read this. And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh, the Lord, had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Zechariah uses the language, or he rather uses language that reminds us of the Exodus. Right? The Exodus being that monumental event in Israel's history where God rescued them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. Where God saved his people from slavery and made them into a great nation. An event, the event of the Old Testament, right, where God displayed his wondrous power for all the nations of the world to see and know that Yahweh is God and there is none other. And now we're hearing that God is about to act again. He's about to act again in a very similar way. He's about to visit his people again, but in a much greater way and with a much greater salvation. He is about to come down, for he has seen the need of his own, and he's about to meet that need. Now, this definitely can be understood metaphorically, right? like in a poetic sense. God's visitation of his people, right? he has visited us, means that he is coming down in some poetic sense to act for them. But this is more literal than Zechariah could have ever imagined, isn't it? This is, this is what's beautiful about this. God himself is going to very literally come and visit his people. As John tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us with the coming of Messiah, God, the Son of God, the eternal Word of the Father will come and dwell with his people. God will visit us. Right? This is the great miracle of Christmas, right? that God himself would come down to us. This should shock you. I would argue this should shock you more than even the resurrection of Christ, that God would take on flesh and visit us. What condescension. What condescension. What graciousness. That God would become one of us in order to visit us and visit us with salvation. There's no God like this. Sincerely. I'm not just saying that to, to make a dramatic point. There really is no God like this. There is no God like our God. Their rock is not like our rock. right? A, a God who looks down upon his sinful people in slavery to sin, Satan, and death, living lives full of fear and void of communion with him, that they put themselves in that situation. And God looks upon them and says, I will go to them because they cannot come to me. I will go to them and will myself make the way for them to be with me. <laughs> there is no God like this. This is, this is what makes God, the actual, the living God, so unique compared to all the false gods of all the other religions in the world that do not exist. They all say, Work and do and strive and labor and work your way to me. But the living God says, no, you can't do that, so I will come to you. And I will visit you with salvation. And in doing this, like with the Exodus, God will display his saving power to the nations. To the nations. 
But not just so they can see and know that he is God, but so that they can now join his people. So those who did not know God may now come to know him because of the mighty work of the Christ, the Son of God. But not only has God visited his people in Christ, but Zechariah says that God has redeemed them. What does that mean? To redeem means to buy back. It is a rescue, but it's a rescue that comes at a price, isn't it? To redeem is to buy back. In the Lord Jesus, God has visited us in order to pay a ransom so that we might be rescued. He's come to work redemption, and that redemption for us is not, is not free. Rather, it's, it's free for us, but it's not free for God. If God's people are to be saved, they must be bought back from their sins. That, that, that is, bought back from the very wrath of God. A price must be paid in order for salvation to be ensured. So wicked is sin. A payment must be rendered in order for us to go free. The salvation that God will grant his people will not be without cost. It will cost the blood of the very Son of God. The God-man. God incarnate. Dying in place of those whom he came to save. Suffering the very wrath of God in their place for their sins. Dying to make propitiation for them. Dying to redeem them from sin and its penalty, which is the wrath of God in hell. Dying to buy them back from the wrath of God. It will be a costly visitation for the Messiah. We always try to remember this at Christmas. This child that we think of, right? This baby was born to die. He came to visit his people, but he came to redeem them. This visitation will not be free for the Messiah, but the result will be a certain redemption for the people of God. And for these things, we ought to be faithful. God has visited and redeemed us in his Son. What else should we be thankful for? We should be thankful that God, verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Right, now, this may sound a little bit strange to 21st century ears. Right? What does Zechariah mean by a horn? Right? It's not a trumpet. Right? It's an animal horn. Right? The Old Testament uses the horns of animals in a symbolic way pretty often, especially in the Psalter. Um, and, and the idea is that the horn represents the power of an animal. Right? If you've ever been around animals with horns, you're probably afraid of them. Right? They don't mess around. If you watch National Geographic, it's a good time. Um, for horned animals, the strength is found in the horn. Strength to attack and strength to defend is found in the horn. So this became a way to refer to might, right? strength and power, or a mighty person. What Zechariah is saying is that God has raised up a mighty source of power. And it is power to save the people of God. Notice it is a horn of salvation. And the salvation spoken of is not some kind of political salvation like the Jews of that age expected. Note, when you look at verse 77, you'll see what kind of salvation Zechariah refers to in this hymn. He says the forgiveness of their sins. So this is first and foremost a spiritual salvation. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's right standing with God, purity in God's sight. It's eternal salvation, everlasting life with God, rescue, again, rescue from the wrath of God, the gracious giving of eternal fellowship with God. That's what kind of salvation that this Messiah will bring. And this horn is to be raised up by God. Now, this is really cool. Right? Like every sermon that I study for, there's usually like one nugget that like I had no idea it was there and blows my mind. I thought this was awesome. In the Old Testament, when God raised somebody up, and I mean that in a positive way, because sometimes God would raise people up that he might strike them down and lay them low. But whenever God raises up someone in a positive sense, 
He was sending a mighty figure to help his people in some way. And when you survey the Old Testament, you see that whenever God positively raises someone up for his people, it is most generally, at least I did not find any contradiction to this in my studies, it is a prophet, a priest, a king, or a judge. Judge meaning savior. Those are the four kinds of people that the Lord raises up whenever he raises someone up. And Zechariah is speaking very much in Old Testament language. So this isn't some kind of abstract power. The power of God to save sinners is a person. We know that again because the mighty horn of salvation comes from the house of God's servant David. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah, the son of David, the eternal king that God promised would come from David's line. Jesus Christ is God's power to save sinners. What do we know if you know your catechism? Jesus is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king, and the great savior of the people of God. And God is raising him up now. Zechariah is praising God because in Christ Jesus, God has sent his people, the great and mighty one, who will deliver them and save them forever. And that is because Jesus Christ is the power of God to save. As the apostle Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. The horn of salvation has come to us, and for this we should give thanks. What else? What else is in this hymn? Why else should we praise and thank God? Well, thirdly, we should give thanks because in Christ, God has kept his promises. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72 and 73, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Jesus Christ was promised long ago and throughout the ages leading up to his birth. And he was promised by multiple prophets, right? Foretold piece by piece over the centuries. And what I found awesome about this is Zechariah says that all these prophets spoke with one singular mouth. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets. What does that mean? They all spoke in one accord. From Adam to Malachi. They spoke in one accord, telling one message about Jesus Christ. Know this. When you read your Bible, no matter where you find yourself, it's all about Jesus. In some way, it all points to Christ. It all foreshadows Christ if it's in the Old Testament. There's a line to something about Jesus in every major section of Scripture. It's all about Him. The prophets spoke with one mouth about Jesus. Well, let me briefly run you through some of the prophecies and promises that God made concerning the Redeemer that Zechariah would be referring to here. This is awesome. First to Adam and Eve. After the fall of mankind into sin, back in Genesis chapter 3, what did God promise? A serpent crusher would one day be born of woman. One who would crush the head of the serpent. Christ was promised back in the Garden of Eden that a redeemer would come to end sin and crush Satan and restore things to how they were before the fall. Later, God revealed himself to Abram in Genesis 12 and told him that in his offspring, all the families and nations of the earth would be blessed. God promised Abram or Abraham that his, or rather that this redeemer would be born of Abraham's lineage. On down, God promised through Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. That is to say that from Judah, a descendant of Abraham, from Judah's descendants would come kings until Shiloh comes. What is Shiloh? Shiloh means the one who brings peace. The peace bringer, dare I say it, the prince of peace. And when Shiloh comes, Jacob says, unto him will be the obedience of all peoples. He will be the king over the world. The Messiah, the serpent crusher, the peace bringer would come from Judah's tribe. And then finally, God promised to King David, a descendant of Judah, that from his lineage would come a great king. And this king would reign forever over an eternal kingdom. And all the other prophets of the Old Testament tell that this king would bless the people of God for eternity. And that they would be safe under his reign. And that his kingdom would conquer the world. And now Zechariah says, God is bringing these things to pass. All of them. All of them in Jesus. The promises are now being realized. What God had said for thousands of years is now finally coming to pass. The serpent crusher, the world blesser, the peace bringer, the eternal conquering king has come. The time of waiting is now over. And the age of fulfillment has begun with the incarnation of the Son of God. God had promised what seemed impossible to a world ruined by sin. God had covenanted and swore that redemption would come. And now, because of his faithfulness, the promises are coming to pass. As Paul says in the King James, for all the promises of God find their yea and amen in him, in Christ. With the first advent of Christ, we see that our God always makes good on what he promises. If God said it, It's as good as accomplished, no matter how impossible it might seem to our finite minds. And for that, we thank him. Because in the coming of Christ, we see that our God is a promise keeper. What else should we praise our God for? Fourthly, I have seven in case you were wondering. Fourthly, we should thank God because in Christ, God has saved us from our enemies. Verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. The Lord Jesus came to conquer our greatest enemies. Now, as I've mentioned before, this is primarily a spiritual salvation, again, regarding verse 77. But you remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, what does Jesus come to do? He will save his people from their sins. The Messiah comes to save us from those who hate us, from our enemies. And those great enemies are sin, Satan, and death. He came to save us from our sins by taking them upon himself and paying for them on the tree. He came to save us from Satan by freeing us from his power and influence by making us new creatures in himself with new desires. He came to save us from death, our final enemy, by rescuing us from the fear of death. Consider this, death which once was going to lead us to hell, has now been defanged and transports us to heaven. And one day it will be utterly decimated at the resurrection, which Christ himself has been raised as the first fruits of. He came to conquer our enemies. Our great enemies have been vanquished in Christ. And by faith in him, we are safe. We are free. But not just our spiritual enemies, right? We have more enemies than just spiritual enemies, don't we, as the people of God? Right? Godless governments. And those who who are in power, who do not fear God, but instead hate his people and oppress them are the enemies of God's people. Not because we've chosen them as our enemies, but because they've chosen us as their enemies. 
that these earthly enemies will be destroyed too. They will be progressively destroyed, one by one, as Christ's kingdom topples the kingdoms of this world by the preaching of the gospel. And by and large, his people in the future will dwell safely, but even more fully and more truly, at the second advent of our Lord, evil will be done away with, period. And there will not be one single solitary enemy left when our Lord returns in glory and in judgment. This may seem impossible. Imagine that, a world without sin. A world where the people of God have zero oppressors. A world where sin, Satan, and death are no more. A new heavens and a new earth. This may seem impossible, but remember, his first advent prepares us and reminds us of the second advent's certainty. A fifth reason for giving thanks is that in Christ, God has granted to us that we should serve him. The tail end of verse 73 and following. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You ever thought about that? Maybe, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But one of the reasons that Christ came into the world is so that you would become a servant of God. You were saved to serve. Your salvation is a means to an end. Right? You're not that important. God is out to glorify himself. And you benefit from it because he saves you that you might serve him and glorify him. God gets all the glory. We get all the benefit. Right? Christ delivered you from sin and Satan in order to set you free to live a life of service to the Lord. Notice that Zechariah says granted, doesn't he? To grant us that we. To grant us. That means this is a gift. This is something that we were not entitled to, but has been graciously given to us through Christ. As Paul, once said, as Paul says, once we were not God's people. But through the work of Messiah, we who are far off have been brought near now. Why? So that we might serve him. You see, our salvation, again, is a means to an end, that we would serve and glorify God. And this isn't the service of a fearful slave. Zechariah says we are to serve him without fear. So this is not a burdensome service. This is a joyful service. To serve God is to be in communion with him, isn't it? To truly serve him, to truly love him, to truly walk in, in heart-filled, spirit-led obedience is to know him. It's to be in fellowship with him. It's to love what he loves and hate what he hates because we have come to know him intimately. It's to obey him because of his covenant kindness toward us in Christ. That's what we've been granted. That's what we've been granted. True, real fellowship with God. We've been granted to become a new creation in Christ that longs to walk in the ways of God and serve him. A new creation that has new desires that we were once unable to have. You ever thought about that? The only reason you don't love sin is because God had mercy upon you and changed you. The only reason, Christian, that you desire to be obedient is because God has made you into a new creation. You literally were unable to have those desires. You're a servant of God by grace. You've been set free that you might serve him. And Zechariah says to do this all of our days. To know God like this all of our days. From now into eternity. Being saved into an everlasting life, this service to God will never end. And therefore, our fellowship with him will never end. And for this, we praise his name.
Sixthly, we ought to thank God when we consider the coming of Christ because God has sent the sunrise or day spring from on high. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's how Zechariah ends this hymn. The sunrise is a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to the Lord Jesus. Let me show this to you. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we're told in a messianic prophecy, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In Malachi chapter 4, Malachi prophesied and said that the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 reads, A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The Old Testament is full of references to the Messiah being a great light, a day star, the sun of righteousness. Jesus even calls himself in Revelation twenty two sixteen. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The point is that Jesus is the sunrise from on high who has come from heaven to visit the people of God. That is to say that in Christ, the light of life has come. With the birth of Jesus, the light of the world has come. And as John tells us, the life or the light was the life of men. And he's come in order to give light. What kind of light? The light of the good news. The light of the gospel. The light of hope to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To those who are in darkness, who are desperate, who have no hope whatsoever, Christ has come. To those who sit in the darkness of depravity and sin and guilt, light has shone to guide them out. To those who sit in the shadow of death, under the condemnation of God, with no hope for eternal life, for them the light has come. To those who are hopeless because of their sin and their estrangement from God, a light to guide the way has shone upon them. The light, who is also the way and the truth and the life, has come into the world. The day spring from on high has come to show the way. To guide those who are in the darkness of sin into the path of peace. He's come to guide sinners into the way of peace with God. Peace with God through faith. Through faith alone in himself. Through faith alone in Christ alone. You want peace with God? Zechariah says, Jesus will guide you. You want peace with God? Do you dwell in darkness? Jesus will light the way for you so that you may come into a kingdom of light. Do you sit in the shadow of death because of your sin? Jesus has come to expel the darkness of your sin so that you might live. All you must do is submit to this sunrise from on high. And by faith, allow him to shine upon you. And he will guide you into peace. The true light has come into the world. The light who gives life. And for this, we thank God. But now we come to our final reason to praise God and give him thanks. Because in Christ, God has shown tender mercy to us. You see, it's mercy 
that undergirds this whole song. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Mercy. Mercy should cause us to thank God. Mercy should open our mouths to praise Him. Tender mercy should be our song. It's because of God's mercy that all of these things are ours in Christ. It's because of God's mercy that He has acted and remembered His covenant. It's because of God's mercy that He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. It's all because of mercy. Let me say it again. Not merit, but mercy. Not what you've earned, but mercy. This is all unearned. Know that. If you don't know that, you're not a Christian. This is all unearned. This is all freely given by God to unworthy sinners. All of these blessings, every one of these blessings, all of these things for which we should give thanks are things that we do not deserve. By our own merits. You want to know what you do deserve? What I deserve? We deserve to be left in the darkness. We deserve to be left in the shadow of death. We deserve God to raise up a great horn of damnation for us. That's what we deserve. We put ourselves in the darkness. We deserve to stay there. But because of God's tender mercy, because God regards us as His children, because God deals kindly with us, because His grace is free, because of who He is, He does these things. Because He's full of mercy. Praise Him. Praise Him. Thank Him for all of your days. Mercy has come to us in Christ. Mercy has come to us, again, who put ourselves in the darkness by our own sin. But God does not deal with us according to our works. Amen? He does not deal with us according to our works. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He deals with us according to His mercy. And so He sent His Son into the world to save us. Praise Him. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For He has visited us and redeemed us and raised up a great horn of salvation for us because of His tender mercy. Praise Him. Praise Him. Now in closing, I know that Christmas can be a a hard time for many people. It seems like I'm shifting gears really hard here, but it's going to come back around. I know that Christmas can be a really hard time for some people. You are reminded of the deaths of loved ones. I feel you. You're reminded of the deaths of loved ones. You're remembered of current estrangement from family members. You're reminded that your life isn't perfect like the Christmas movies. You're reminded of your financial poverty because you can't afford to get people the things that you would like to get them. You're reminded of the vanity and wickedness of the world and its ugliness and secular celebrations. You're reminded of the sadness that is in your own life. Holidays can be a strange and difficult time for people. Instead of a time of joy, it can sincerely be a time of great sorrow and great pain for many. But in this text, I want you to see that you ought to praise God and be thankful to Him anyway. You have much to be glad for. Because your Savior has come. God has come down and visited and redeemed you. The horn of salvation has come to lead you in a new and greater exodus. God has kept his promises. God has saved you from your enemies. God has granted that you would become one of his people. God has sent the day spring from on high to guide you. 
God has shown tender mercy to you. So be thankful and full of praise this Christmas. Now hear me, I want to clarify. Your problems are real. Far be it for me to try to minimize them or guilt you, right? This is not a drive-by guilting, right? Far be it for me to guilt you because you have legitimate sorrows. Far be it for me to do that. That's not my intention. What I want you to see is that you have many, many, many reasons to praise God in spite of those sorrows. You have many reasons to thank Him in spite of the sadness. Because the horn of salvation has come to us. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and we are saved and safe in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us again because of your tender mercy. These things are ours and we deserve none of them. We deserve to be damned. We deserve to be cut off from you and all good. But you have instead given us all good through Christ. You have bought us back from our sins. You have shined light upon us. You have loved us who are unlovable in him. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to, to put these truths deep in our hearts by your grace. And that we would meditate on them. So that we would always be prepared to give a declaration of praise and thanksgiving to you, no matter what our situations might be, because you are still worthy and you have still been kind to us, even in our sadness. We praise you and we thank you for the good news of Christ and his kingdom. We pray this in his name. Amen.